And it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And we're beginning a short series in the Old Testament that we're calling Christmas Foretold. Now, what we find through the whole of Scripture, even from the mouth of Jesus, is that all of God's Word points to God's Son. From beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation, everything we read in our Bibles points to the Savior Jesus, who we celebrate in a special way in a Christmas season. In this series, we will consider four Old Testament passages that foretell not just the birth of Christ, but his work, his gospel, and his effect on our lives today. And we'll see how Jesus changes everything. Our passage today will be in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 21, as we contemplate Eve's offspring. Our main takeaway, I'll just get right to the main point. Our main idea this morning is simply this. Jesus is the one who restores. But before, as you're you're turning to Genesis, before we get to Genesis 3, I'd like to draw your attention to an important Christmas verse in Genesis 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that might strike you as an odd Christmas verse. You don't hear many holiday jingles this time of year regarding that verse. I'm not sure why. But think for a moment about what this verse really communicates in verse 25. God had created a perfect world. And the pinnacle of that creation was to make man and woman in his image, to reflect him, to represent him as they journeyed in this life in communion, in communion with him and with one another. But that changed. Verse 25 tells us that they had lived openly, unashamed, unworried. They had lived free, lacking guilt, fear, and anxiety. They were totally naked before God, body and soul. And not just before God, but before one another. If you want to know what a healthy marriage and partnership looks like, man and woman are naked, body and soul, before one another. There is explicit trust. They are truly for one another. No matter what they look like, no matter what they're thinking, how they feel, they're naked, they're an open book to one another. And this is what true paradise consists of in the garden. Perfect peace and intimacy, unity with God and with others. And as you likely are aware, that didn't last for long. Adam and Eve turned their back on God. And as we all have at times, but this, theirs, was the first. And they pivoted from a life that God had given them to pursue their own way. The natural question after a fall, after this kind of separation, after this fracturing, the natural question would be this. How will restoration come? How can it all be fixed? Well, read with me, please, Genesis 3, verses 8 through 21. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The the woman, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is God's word. Well, we'll see and consider first in this passage in Eve's offspring, our fear in God's movement. And we get this directly from verses 8 through 13. Earlier in Genesis 2, God had laid out to Adam what it looked like to be a faithful follower. God, he put a boundary on the free and unashamed life in that garden. Namely, to stay away from a particular tree and its fruit. The consequence of turning from God, he said, would be death. But in a different and fuller way than Adam would have first thought. So after the fruit of rebellion had been tasted, we see Adam and Eve in our text hiding in fear. If the consequence was to be death, since they had truly turned their back on God because they communicated, not just in their words, but in their actions, that God's ways and God's world was not enough. They themselves, they hid because they had a healthy fear That the decisions of this life have consequences. We see in these verses, instead of openness, instead of freedom, instead of joy and intimacy with God, Adam and Eve heard the sound of God walking in the cool wind of a beautiful day in the garden, and they disappeared. They hid. Now, I think many of us can relate to this kind of reaction. 
When we sin, we knowingly turn our back on God and His Word and we choose our own way. Now, we didn't want to be near God or follow Him in the moment. At least that's how it is for me. When I say, do, and think things that are, I know are contrary to God, in that moment of my choosing, I'm saying, I'd rather not be near Him. I'd rather choose what I want. And I certainly don't want to be near Him afterwards. I make the poor decision, and I say, well, there's no sense in going to Him now. I've already messed up. So I hide. And perhaps like Adam and Eve, we become convinced by the lie that if we follow God's ways, we won't be satisfied. Because that's where it gets me. Every time I choose, like Adam and Eve, to turn from what I know to be right, or what God says to be right, but I just don't enjoy, I'm fearful that I'm going to miss out on something. I'm fearful that if I don't choose my own way, I'll be lacking in some way. And we do become convinced by that lie. We think we'll miss out on the fruit of our own desires and what our aspirations promise us. So we ourselves today, in the day-to-day, we take the fruit and we set out on our own course, even if it's just for a moment. Whether it's guilt, fear, the temporary joy of my decision, whatever it is, we often don't want to be near God afterwards, and we hide. We're probably not hiding naked in a garden. For us, it looks like hiding and turning away and maybe not being around God's people or being in God's Word or praying. And that's how it was with Adam and Eve. But as we considered last week, even when sons and daughters made in the image of God, even when we run off, into the far country of sin and self, there's an initiating father moving and working to bring us back. In verse 8 of our passage here, God didn't wait for this erring couple to get it right. He went and sought them out. He didn't sit around and say, well, when Adam and Eve show up to church, when they do the online Bible study, when they read their devotions together, when their performance reaches this, then me, God, I'll reach out to them. No. No. No, God initiates. In verse 9, God doesn't wait for these fearful children to muster up courage. Well, I'm going to wait. Maybe Adam and Eve don't need to do the Bible study, but they sinned. So I'm going to wait for them to come to me and just confess openly and say, I made a mistake. No. No, God calls out and invites relationship. God doesn't wait for Adam and Eve to feel convicted by their own spiritual morality. In verse 10, he asks them a probing question. To bring them out to true confession and repentance. Often we move away from God, but He always moves in and initiates. It's clear that the very nature of God, even at the beginning of the account of Scripture, is kind, patient, inviting, initiating, and after the hearts of His people. The severity of their action, yes, it was significant. They dared to spit in the face of God and say, well, I'm going to go with the lying serpent instead. 
They didn't just bite some fruit. They turned on the God who made them, who provided for them, who set boundaries for their good and for their joy. Nah, I'm cool. Rather than living as an image and a reflection of my creator, they wanted to be the king of their own life. But God's response in our passage, it could have been, what could have it been? Maybe a thunderbolt from the heavens? A lightning bolt, rather? A thundering rebuke and a whirlwind that threw them down to the ground? It could have been immediate torture and death from a God watching, waiting to punish anyone who would make the slightest mistake? No. No, that's not the God of the Scriptures. Adam and Eve seemingly failed to notice the gracious initiation and movement of God. And in verses 12 and 13, they played the blame game. You guys know this game well, don't you? What happened? God, it wasn't me, it was the woman. And it wasn't just the woman, it was the woman you gave me. The blame game. Well, we know something like that. Children, it's not my fault I dishonored my parents. Have you seen them? They were impatient with me first. They just didn't get it. Well, it's, it's not my fault I snapped at my spouse. They were being foolish. It's not really my fault I cheated on my taxes. God, the government you placed over me is corrupt. It's not my fault I'm an angry driver. Have you seen the drivers on Highway 210? It's not my fault I struggle with this particular sin. God, that's how you made me. The blame game that we play is the one that our first parents, Adam and Eve, played. Rather than seeing how God lovingly moved toward them, rather than confessing sin and waywardness, rather than seeking to reorient their lives and their hearts back to God, they buckled down, they doubled down. God moved toward them, but they aren't meeting him. And I think I can relate to that more than I'd like to admit. But it's not just our fear and God's movement. Next, I want us to see in our passage our consequence in God's justice. Now, this is clear once the curses start coming in verse 14 through 19 here. And we might have a measure of displeasure or scoffing at the idea of God being one of justice. In our 21st century minds, what has transpired in this passage feels and seems so small. Not believing God's word, listening to the deceptive words of an enemy, (laughs) eating some fruit, hiding in a garden. These feel like small potatoes, perhaps in comparison to the sins that we might think of today. They didn't kill anyone. No one was physically harmed. They didn't cheat on their spouse. They didn't abuse their children. They didn't do drugs. They didn't root for the Green Bay Packers. Nothing that they did seemed as grievous as some of the things that we might come up with today. But... Brothers and sisters, I think we are numb to the severity of sin as a whole. A lot of it has to do with the world and the soup that we swim in today, even in the church. 
You see, we create unbiblical categories for what one writer has dubbed respectable sins we tolerate. We, the body of Christ, we create unbiblical delineations of sin in God's justice. So, many well-meaning Christians raise voice about the very real, the very real cultural concerns of sexual deviation, critical race theory, and abortion. But then in turn, those same Christians will fail to apply the same energy to anger and hate and greed and the anti-gospel humanism of your favorite news channel. While the consequences of sin, yes, they do vary. They do vary by the nature of them. Every turning from God in every area of life is a natural imitation of Adam and Eve, our first parents. If God is just, well, then he'll hold us accountable in this life and the next one. If God is truly just, those who volitionally choose to turn away from his good ways will reap the consequences both now and ultimately in eternity. And this is what we're reading in verses 16 through 19. When these curses start flying towards Adam and Eve, these consequences, these punishments, Adam and Eve are given these consequences by a just God. Appropriate consequences for their turning from Him. So we read in our text that both Adam and Eve are to suffer the repercussion of physical pain of childbirth and difficult work. They suffer fracturing. As sin, it will wedge itself in between their relationship. And the relationship shifts from one of freeness and joy, openness and love, to now of relationship jockeying for position and power. The world we live in, God says, is cursed because of our sin and our choices. The paradise of the garden wasn't enough. Now our first parents are to find out that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. They set themselves up to be king of their own lives, and rejecting God has brought with it brokenness into their hearts and into this world. Now, that's pretty dark, especially for a Sunday morning and Christmas season. However, it's not all bad news. Woven in between cursing and justice, we see God's grace and promises for a future restoration, a future paradise in a new garden. Look again closely at verses 14 and 15. Now, this evil one, Satan, having taken the form of a serpent, is cursed as well. There's consequences to his sin. Because God is just, he sees to it that evil is answered for in this world and life. And there'll be something of a kind of a humiliation of the evil one as he goes on his belly. Now, a lot has been written about the mysterious nature of Satan choosing to take the form of a snake and the relationship between the two. We'll save that for another time. But what I'd like for us to be clear on this morning is this. God's justice demonstrates that evil at its core will be dealt with. So verse 15 tells us that there will be enmity. There'll be bad blood, Taylor Swift says. 
There'll be hostility, antagonism between Satan and the woman, her offspring and his offspring. Now, clearly, this implies something more than just physical. This implies something much deeper than us dealing with gardener snakes in our gardens and around our septic tanks and drain fields. Adam and Eve represent not just humanity, but as we'll see, they represent faithful followers of Christ. So in these passages, God tells us readers that here at the beginning of the redemptive records, there will be a cosmic battle between good and evil. Offspring versus offspring. Good guys up against and versus the bad guys. Through the scriptures and through human history. Verse 15, actually, my friends, drives the narrative of the entire Bible. Your whole Bible is put together on Genesis 3.15. Everything you read, no matter where you find it, you're in Numbers, 2 Kings, Ezekiel, Psalms, Luke, Philemon, Revelation, it doesn't matter. It's driven by the promise at the end of this verse in 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that bruise isn't something like some patch on your arm that's turned purple and dark. But rather, it's almost as a a striking, a crushing, an overwhelming, a destroying. The cosmic battle will end, and by implication, the garden will be restored. Humanity will be open, free, unashamed again, and all will be brought back right when the new Adam arrives, when this offspring comes. When an offspring of faith, an offspring of this woman comes and does what Adam should have done that first day in the garden. Take that stupid snake and crush its head. And that's the promise. So when you're introduced to any story, or rather rather any character in the storyline of Scripture... This verse should be ringing in our mind. So I read of characters like Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and Moses, Samson, Saul, David, Jeremiah, Jonah, it doesn't matter. All the rest. Thousands of years pass and we keep asking, is this the new Adam? Is this the one who will crush that serpent? Is this the one who will bring restoration, peace, joy, and a truly unashamed life back to humanity? Well, my friends, that is what we celebrate this Christmas season. We ourselves, we could not bring the garden back with our moral living and our self-proclaimed righteousness. We can't manufacture a way to destroy evil in our own heart and to give us a deep love and affection and a following of God. Jesus is the offspring, the Savior that was born. He was born to live a perfect life and die a perfect death in order to crush evil and bring restoration. The Apostle Paul, he frames our thinking for Christmas. Jesus is the newer and better Adam, the true offspring and protector of our souls. Here's how one translation communicates Romans 5. 12 through 17. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in? 
first sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses in the law. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Yes, the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin puts crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured out through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between the death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine? Can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes? Absolute life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man, Jesus Christ, provides you and I? Oh, yes. Yes, Paul. The consequence of sin was separation and death. That's what Adam brought. But a new Adam brings peace. The justice of God, yes, does require wrongdoing to not go unsettled. But in God's grace, he cursed that evil one, and he promised to bring a son who would put it right one day. So the death and resurrection of Jesus was the fatal blow that began the restoration of the kingdom of God. That's what we celebrate in Christmas. As we trust in Jesus' work on our behalf, as we ourselves are changed initially and gradually and eventually wholly into the image of God, we taste in measure now that new, unashamed life. And we'll know it fully one day in that new garden, in the new heavens, in the celestial city. My friends, would you take a moment this morning to consider what the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, this new Adam, what it means on your behalf. It means that your shame and your brokenness can be restored. Will you love him? Because as the scripture says, he first loved us. Will you follow this offspring? Well, may the Lord help us. But lastly, I want to point out in this ancient narrative, we see our belief in God's covering. We'll finish by looking at verses 20 and 21. Adam and Eve initially, we saw, were fearful and hiding. But as they saw God's gracious movement toward them, even while they were sinners, even when they heard 
those curses, those judgments, even when they heard the consequences of their sinful choices and rebellion. We now see in these verses that faith and belief have been established in their hearts and in their lives. Lakewood, how do we know? How do we know that Adam and Eve are believing in God's promises? How do we know they are clinging to the hope that God is someday going to restore all things? How do we know they are actually loving and following God? Their actions demonstrate their faith. I think we could learn a thing or two from this couple here. It's become quite common for us, at least for me, to make mental assent to truth. We may sing on a Sunday morning or courageously in our mind post something on social media as it relates to biblical truth. In the safe spaces of Bible studies and Sunday schools, we can and do make declarations of faith. But on a Monday morning, do our actions demonstrate the faith we declare? Children, does the way you act around your peers at school or your tone with your parents reflect the faith that you claim to possess? Adults, does the way you talk about coworkers, engage with neighbors, or complain about society does that reflect the faith you proclaim? Older saints, does the way you talk about the culture, your own medical concerns, or an upcoming generation that you don't quite understand at times, does it reflect the faith in a God who extends mercy and works mightily in every era of human history? And I have to ask myself, and I have asked myself, Matt, do your actions demonstrate your trust in God's promises on the daily? Every day, do I act as someone who truly believes what I'm saying in believing and reading? What well, we see in our passage in verse 20 and 21, that Adam and Eve lived what they believed. How crazy is that? They said they believed something, and they lived it. They were so convinced that an offspring was going to come. They were so convinced that God wasn't going to change his mind and kill them in that moment. They were so convinced that God was true to his word, and that healing and restoration would come through their family someday. They were so convinced that Adam called his wife Eve. And you may have a note in your Bible that says Eve comes from a Hebrew word that sounds like life giver, a word that resembles living. They were so convinced that physical and spiritual life were coming. They identify with the promise by name. That's how much they believed in God's promises. They identified it by name name how do you identify should we not do the same should we not identify ourselves by God's promises I think we should 
Eve, the mother of living, the mother of the one who will restore us. I think our language could be similar in the way we communicate. When we talk about our weekend, when we talk about our holiday schedule, when we talk about our family and our sports and the Vikings win today, do we communicate in such a way? Is the very DNA of our communication one where we are constantly identifying with the promises of God? Well, in our passage, God covered their physical nakedness that day with garments of skin, this first animal sacrifice. And their shame was covered by the payment of that sacrifice, but only temporarily. Covering would be provided as the wheels of redemptive history had been put in place. One day, a child would come. One day, a child would be born. He would be born to die, born to restore, born to bring people back, the people of God, back to a free, unashamed life in haven. A haven that sees people living at peace, people living at unity, and people at love, in love with their God and with one another. That's what the Christmas season is supposed to communicate as we live it and as we celebrate it. So in your families, around your trees, in your Advent reading, in your songs, in your devotions, this time of the year is supposed to point to the offspring that would come, the one that would bring about restoration and peace to our souls. And why is it, I wonder, that so often this holiday season can be one of stress? Stressing over whether or not your Amazon package will arrive in time for Christmas? What you're going to eat? Who may or may not be offended over the Christmas dinner and the visitation schedule? The busyness of this season and the commercialization of is it, or, I don't know, is that a word? The commercialization of it? It has a way to rob us from being people who identify with the promises of God. How much of our language is Eve's offspring? How much of our language in the Christmas season is restoration? And can I kindly remind you in this Christmas season that just as Adam and Eve dealt and struggled with shame and guilt, so you and I do as well. We have shame before God because we're shameful. Because <laughs> we make decisions and do things that we regret. We feel that our Christian performance is subpar and lacking. We experience shame before one another because we fail one another in our relationships. But can I remind you that if you have, and when there is a measure of shame in your relationship with God or in your relationship with others in your life, could I encourage you to consider Jesus in a fresh way? This Eve's offspring that would take away your shame and bring about restoration with God and the people in your life. Which very naturally, my friends, leads us to communion. Communion isn't some cute Christian thing that the church drummed up one day. 
But God knew at the beginning of the foundation of the world that you and I would come to Sundays like this, where the promises of God seem far off, Eve's offspring doesn't seem to be restoring and healing anything in my life, and we wonder, is it real? God, are you real? I'll ask those that are serving communion to come up at this time. But let me just, by way of reminder, tell you what communion is. And I always like to make this joke. Communion, you always knew when communion Sunday was in the local church because every Sunday was communion Sunday. Because communion throughout Christian history has always been a tangible means of grace where the body of believers come together and we say, listen, this week God seems far off. In this Christmas season, Eve's offspring hasn't conquered any evil in my heart and restored anything with God and the people around me. So I need something real. I need something tangible to know that God is real and he'll work. And in the Lord's kindness, he gave us that. So the bread, as you, as you eat it, and this little cup, as you drink it, you'll feel it physically tangibly on your lips and it's God's way to say just as you feel that literally physically on your lips so too literally true are the promises of God so too are the promises of Eve and this offspring that would come to bring restoration in our lives here today and can I encourage you if you have trusted in Jesus if you're not harboring some kind of unrepentant sin, can I encourage you to, to take this, to eat this, to drink this as a means of God's reminder to you. He's the offspring. He's the one who restores. He will and can restore what's going on in your life now. And if you're here and you're considering Christianity, if restoration, if the ancient promises of, a, of an offspring is something you're interested in, to have your heart changed and your life changed, well, we're grateful that you're here. Would you allow this to go by? Allow this to go by and consider what a relationship with God would mean today in this Christmas season. Let me just say a, a short prayer before we pass these elements. Father, that is a big prayer, that you would show yourself to be the God who restores. It restores our hearts to you and restores our hearts to one another. Lord, would the bread and the cup uh, remind us that uh, you come to deal with sin on our behalf, that Jesus lived a perfect life, he died a sacrificial death and rose again, so that we might know true peace, true freeness, and unashamed life now and forever. Lord, press these things into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.